0: the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. They may allow us temporarily to beat him at his own game, but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change. And this fact is only threatening to those women who still define the master's house as their only source of support.
1: It's crazy how you just, people are talking about um, you know, the newest of the new ideas, and then they're also just acting like they're living in the 1770s.
0: Bad girls, bad women, (laughs) or the ones who like to be naughty, might
1: go out and play. There will be enough female justices on the Supreme Court. When they're in line, of course. Another woman is possible. Another woman has always already began. into this world. Nice body.
0: Okay. Cool. <laughs> what was
1: that? <laughs> I just said cool, and then you said something at the same time. So, so I guess now we're going to talk about the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house, which is the titula essay of this whole anthology Um, so it's kind of the most important one probably and this one's definitely like
0: you know I guess specifically talking about white feminism and problems with it but also it's still referencing like that same that there's this deep knowledge inside of us or whatever too Mm -hmm. but yeah and there's this idea of
1: difference in this one that she goes into a lot true true so do you want to start uh yeah so i think it's fair to say that the like at least one main idea of the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house is intersectionality and basically being constantly aware she she wants us to always be vigilant that we're not using the tools of the master to engage in revolution because the master being heteropatriarchy whiteness uh europe colonialism yeah your like europe in general the the empire all these systems of power that that hold power over those who are oppressed by those in power um we need to be vigilant and aware that we're not using the tools that derive from them to try and dismantle them. <laughs> I mean, it's it's pretty straightforward, I think. So, But she opens with the uh, New York University Institute for the Humanities Conference in 1978. Mm-hmm. And she was assigned to talk about the role of difference within the lives of American women, difference of race, sexuality, class, and age. And she... She, was, she gets kind of pissed off because <laughs> she is one of only two black women who presented there and they were found in the last hour. Um, so she's, you know, she's criticizing the people that run the conference for basically using only white women at a conference about women. It's like, uh, (laughs) how are you gonna how are you gonna take down patriarchy if if you're only using a section a small section uh of the population that is affected by patriarchy you know it's like she says it means that only the most narrow perimeters of change are possible and allowable
0: yeah well it's also it has to do with the same thing with uh it's like these women just want to be like white men they're not really even trying to identify with other women. They're just, and this is just like a huge criticism of white feminism in general, that it's like, who do you, you, want, who do you want to be equal to? Mm-hmm. You want equality, but who do you want to be equal to? You want to be equal to white men. Well, that's never going to be tearing down whiteness because you're still benefiting from being white. And so you're just hoping that the feminine part of you can just be minimized or hidden you know that you can just I don't know it's this interesting thing too that um, uh, Hannah Arendt talks about with like the origins of totalitarianism so she's talking about like in that book she's talking about Jews but she also ends up comparing it to black Americans Um, but I think this kind of relates to like to white Americans or white women but she says like because like being Jewish was this caste that was so unacceptable like Jews only had the chance of like being accepted into society by like distinguishing themselves as like a special Jew as in different from the masses of Jews so that part of becoming accepted was a rejection of like the other Jews so it was like oh yeah most Jews are like whatever but I'm like an especially talented Jew and so like that part of being accepted was, like, a rejection of yourself or your own group, and I feel that way with white women a lot, when it's, like, oh, all they want to do is, like, oh, just give me a chance to talk about Plato or, you know, write about Hegel because, like, I just want the chance that, like, white guys have, but it's, like, well, what about just changing the entire narrative, the entire system where, like, we're not centering on Plato and Hegel, like, we're actually centering, like, you know, Audre Lorde. And, like, understanding that is going to be more important. But, you know, anyway, so I think that that's part of the tension she's getting at here, too. It's just that, like, (sighs) they just don't want to, like, have to deal with, like, for white women, it's like how, oh, abortion rights, like, that's reproductive rights. We're good. And it's like, well, a lot of people can't get abortions or a lot of people don't have access to birth control or um, a lot of people don't trust the fucking medical industry
1: because it used
0: to fucking sterilize them. Not that yeah. long. Ago.
1: Or they're poor and like can't exactly. act, even if they wanted to access the care they can't.
0: Exactly. Medicare for all people. Medicare for all.
1: But yeah. Yep. Yeah. This is also. I think I was reading this section on the second page where she says, um, "The for women, the need and desire to nurture each other is not pathological but redemptive." Mm-hmm. And it is within that knowledge that our real power is rediscovered. So this is different from, um, again, like this is just cementing her differences between, I guess, what she sees as people at the conference who are interested in, in, I guess, achieving the status of white mas- or like or at least like white malehood at this conference, and she's trying to tell them the desire to nurture is not pathological. It's, it's actually, it's good. It's where our real power is rediscovered when, when we have the knowledge of that. And that only within a patriarchal structure is maternity. The only social power open to women. So this is an important difference between her and Shulie, two very different feminists that Shulie thinks that like she, Shulie fundamentally questions whether women are nurturers and Audrey, being a mother and a partner to, I think, at least one man and at least two women, two or three women throughout her life, um, she clearly thinks nurturing is an important part of being human um, and that there's power in it. But she disagrees. She just disagrees that the desire to nurture and the need to nurture others and each other women specifically is only seen as a disadvantage in in patriarchy so she's she's not saying that women are nurturers she's just saying that we need to open our minds to the idea that women who are nurturers are like they they have the same legitimacy i guess as as, like, I guess the more conventional second-wave feminist idea of this time, which is, we're not all nurturers. like, don't tell us we're all nurturers. don't put us in a box.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, also, though, she's saying, too, like, specifically, so I think, yeah, what's ironic to her is, like, okay, you want to bring one Black woman here to talk about all these differences, but you're not going to bring, like, women from the third world. You're not going to bring, like... Right. Yeah, right. you're going to bring... So how are you going to learn about all these differences? You just want one black, like basically tokenism, like you want one black woman to tell you about race, sexuality, class, you know, obviously she is very like well equipped to do that, but it's still just like, you're putting it all on her. And what if she wanted to talk about existentialism, which she says too, she's like, you're just assuming black women could only want to talk about difference. Yeah. But then she also says like there was an absence of any consideration of lesbian consciousness. I think that's something that strikes her a lot throughout like, everything really is that like even in feminism so much of the expectation is that like what women want is to be able to have relationships with men and like even though there was a movement in the united states like in radical feminism where people would basically i don't want to say be chosen lesbians but they would just be like like as a political statement like there's no way to be in a heterosexual relationship without reproducing the systems of domination between like without reproducing sexism. Like, so yeah. So there's a way in which like being a lesbian itself is like uh, a radical act, like against masculinity and yet like is not dealt with at all. And she says like, Oh, they talk about relationships between women, but like the model that they're using is like not her experience. Like she has, and this makes sense too. She has an, uh, an experience of like relying almost solely on women and like these interdependent relationships between women. But like, yeah, if you're a lesbian and like your partner is a woman too, you don't really like, like a male doesn't really have to be part of your like model of like a family, I guess. Um, Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, definitely.
0: But yeah. And then there's, she makes this comment. I don't really know what it means at the bottom of page 17 this is a difference between the passive be and the active being.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. Interdependency between women is the way to a freedom, which allows the I to be not in order to be used, but in order to be creative. This is a difference between the passive be and the active being. Yeah.
0: Mm. yeah so that's, I thought again, might be related to the European mode because it's not in order to be used, but in order to be creative. Like, um, so the creative is the non-European and, but also like, so, usually the woman becomes, quote-unquote, I mean, at least in the typical model, becomes dependent on the man for survival. She's, like, here being, like, no, women should be interdependent
1: mm-hmm.
0: on each other. And I think this is, like, also a pushback against, like, remember when we talked about the privatization of women after the right to vote was won? How they, like, reprivatized this and they went back into, like, family units where, like, their main adult interaction was with, like, a male? hmm Yeah. So, yeah, I just thought that was, like, an interesting thing where she's, like, this is not even been noticed by feminists because they're so unaware of lesbian consciousness that they don't even think that, like, it's a possible way people could be. Um,
1: it is a way people are already. Yeah. And, like, they've yeah. been that way for forever. And I know. Like, we can draw from that. We can draw from that knowledge of interdependency. It's, like, seems like a very obvious source of information that they're just ignoring
0: exactly i mean it's like what is this feminism even like who is this for
1: yeah right yeah so she she is also very interested in like plurality i think she she doesn't like being told that she needs to talk about difference it seems like she she wants us to to understand our differences and care for each other and nurture each other spider differences but she does want us to unite like she really is interested in interdependence of mutual non-dominant differences um she says this enables us to descend into the chaos of knowledge and return with true visions of our future along with the concomitant power to affect those changes which can bring that future into being Difference is that raw and powerful connection from which our personal powers forge. So she's very positive about difference.
0: Well, it's interesting. It kind of strikes me as an argument for diversity as well. Like, why we need to, like, be integrated, basically. Why we need to interact with people of other cultures and such. Because mm-hmm. it's, yeah. like, literally a source of, like, knowledge and power again.
1: Mm-hmm survival is not an academic skill. I like that quote a lot. (laughs) She thinks everything is being too academic and academicized or like, I guess like oriented toward an academic framework when she's like, no, this is, this is survival and it doesn't need to be restricted to the academy.
0: Why? Yeah. I like the phrasing here too, where she said, those of us who have been forged in the crucibles of difference." Yeah, I just really like the idea, too, of, like, being forged. And, like...
1: You know, she criticizes, like you said, the conference for not really including poor women, women of color. What's the theory behind racist feminism? (laughs) Burn. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So she, she does think it's political. She asks a lot of questions of the people in the conference, basically just saying, again, reiterating... You know you're leaving a lot of people out, and the fact that this is so academic and removed from a lot of real women's lives kind of inoculates it um, as being an effective and powerful tool to actually get to actually enact the theories you guys are talking about. Um,
0: right. She has that great quote, which is like, <clears throat> "If white American feminist theory need not deal with the differences between us." And the resulting difference in our oppressions, then how do you deal with the fact that the women who clean your houses and tend your children while you attend conferences on feminist theory are for the most part poor women and women of color? And yeah. she even says at the beginning, she's like, they didn't even um, make it possible for women to, like, poor women to have their feet waived. And, like, that right there just shows you, like, you're only interested in, like, women of a certain class even coming to this conference.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, it's limiting, for sure. Fuck this conference. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> but I can totally feel why she would feel that way. I mean, I've had... This just makes me think of just like a personal anecdote of um, my composition teacher. Uh, she, A, is a woman, and a lot of... Yeah, a lot of composers now are women, but like, it is still a very traditionalist part mm-hmm. of like music and um like at least academic music and so women are still they still face obstacles and not only that but she was she also had a disability she had mobility issues um and so she you know she would go to conferences and be like women in music that would like totally ignore like race or class or disability mm-hmm. and she would always talk about this like with our class that, like <laughs> women don't make a certain kind of music, like disabled people don't make a certain kind of music. Like these differences are, they're not monolithic. Um, There's always something deeper. There's always another current running through somebody. They're not just a woman. They're not just disabled, you know? You have to think of all of these things, like the complexity, the depth of people.
0: Yeah, I mean, I still would say I think there's something that, like, there is a reason that we need to read women because only reading men, like, there is something about male writing that is different from female writing, I do think. And I think also just the restrictiveness of what's counted as professional writing is defined in large part by, like, uh, these dictates of what's logic and what's rationality and, like, what kind of wording is, you know academic and that's like like people would say that Audre Lorde isn't like she's a poet she's not a philosopher that's what people would say I mean I wouldn't say that but people would say that because they'd say even just the way she's writing it's you know like they would find a way to discount it is basically what I'm saying
1: oh yeah as if yeah, like Carl Young didn't write the same way or like even fucking poetry. oh my god Young's writing is he switches between Greek, Hebrew, and French in the same page. Like I think the they guy... like that, though.
0: Huh? The Academy likes that kind of thing, though.
1: Yeah, but it's also ju- like, if you're going to argue from a perspective of, oh, you know, this is too, this is too verbose or too flowery or too difficult to understand, too obscurantist, whatever. <laughs> that's obscurantist as fuck. I know. Um, so... Yeah, but that's, yeah. I was
0: going to say, this is an interesting fact. You mentioned music composition specifically, and um, I was looking at studies of basically gender parity and then also like diversity or like racial parity in different disciplines. And like disciplines that are considered like or that genius is considered necessary for are like the least, they have the least gender equity and the least racial equity. So those Mm -hmm. fields are musical composition, philosophy and mathematics those are often considered like you have to just be brilliant you just have to be a genius like music composition is just like oh there was just like mozart it was just beethoven like they just were just geniuses and it happened you know but so anyway yeah and that those tend to be like where genius is considered important it tends to like be the whitest and like the most masculine disciplines So I'm sure that that works both ways where like women don't think they're smart enough to even try, but then also men find ways to like delegitimize women that do try.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot of that and it's really unfortunate. And it's like these, when you get into that realm of like the academy, it, it's crazy how you just, people are talking about Um, You know the newest of the new ideas, and then they're also just acting like they're living in the 1770s Somehow it's like this weird. Oh, yeah, like I love fucking like Hegel and Kant uh, But also Angela Davis and like it's like no no you don't like you're you're just You're just a white dude who wants to impress people with your reading list you want to take a picture of your stack of books and show everyone, like, your degree of, of intelligence. Like, you want to show the report card. And, like, it, yeah, it's just, it's this whole, like, very silly, like, you know, look how good at school I am. I'm such a good boy type of mentality I've seen from a lot of people. Um, it seems like you kind of have to maintain that identity if you want to be taken seriously, you know?
0: So, like, there's, like, being emasculated like, becoming, like, a male-seeming, like, less masculine and then there's like emasculation like being forced to become masculine and like like with an eye yeah yeah and that idea is just like to become an intellectual like you have to emasculate yourself like you have to learn to think like men to write like men to be approved by men because like those are the people that are going to decide like if you pass classes they're going to decide like and like even if you do like hegel or whatever if you want to become like most of the time, women have to in philosophy, for instance, have to be like experts on men. I could be like, "Oh yeah, I'm, I really get Hannah Arendt," but people be like, "Oh, but do you get Hegel? Do you have yeah, more? yeah?"
1: <laughs> it's like the important ones. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. Even though like women are just as complex, but yeah, generally men think. Also, the more women are in a field, the less seriously the
1: field is taken. So true, psychology. Yep sociology yeah Yeah.
0: so anyway yeah i like that page though when you you said like what is the theory behind racist feminism yeah that that part's really great and and then there's the line for the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house they may allow us temporarily to beat him at his own game but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change and this fact is only threatening to those women who still define the master's house as their only source of support
1: yeah, the last the very last paragraph says racism and homophobia are the real conditions of all our lives in this place and time. I urge each one of these of us, excuse me, I urge each one of us to reach down into that deep place of knowledge inside herself and touch that terror and loathing of any difference that lives there. See whose face it wears. Then the personal as the political can begin to illuminate all of our choices. So yeah, that's She's asking people to confront themselves. Exactly, yeah.
0: And, yeah, it's, like, even you people who think you're feminists, you're not a real feminist. It's just, like, you're not a real feminist if you're transphobic. It's, like, you're not a real feminist if you're not considering how even just being a woman affects people differently when they have a different race. Um, or, like, yeah, class, etc. cetera.
1: What is that? Is there an article called My Feminism Will Be Intersectional or It Will Be Bullshit? Is that a tiger beatdown? Is it, like, just a Tumblr post? Um,
0: I don't know. Is it just a uh, Tumblr
1: post? You know, no, it's, like, a longer essay. But it's by Flavia Zodan, I guess. I'm just Googling it right now. Um, I don't know who she is. Uh, she's a writer, feminist, Latina, Sudaka, immigrant. I don't write. I don't rant, I write manifestos. So, yeah, she's like a, she's an activist. Um, but it's a pretty good essay. I can, it just reminded me of my, the master's and never dismantle the master's house. Um, but yeah, it was kind of ma- being circulated like 2011, 2012. Um, I just thought it was a good encapsulation of the same idea, but mm-hmm. in a later date, updated for today. I can send it right. to you. Right, well,
0: yeah, I think now the push would be just like feminism, like even what do you mean when you're describing a distinctly feminist position? um but yeah, if you're not trying to dismantle like all forms of oppression, then you're just an oppressor yourself,
1: yeah, which should like be been- you're, you're shooting yourself in the foot, also, it's like it's like you're not not only are you like you know, not including these people. I'm not even saying, you know, you're such a meanie, you should include us. You're actually lessening the impact of your own movement. Like, if you don't include it, if it's not fully inclusive.
0: For the uses of anger, um, it's, you know, similar to the uses of the erotic chapter, of course, she's sort of trying to tell us like what we can do with our anger. Um, but it's definitely different than the erotic. So, she first, she distinguishes between, basically, anger, fear, guilt, hatred. And, like, anger is really just, um, co- like, arises from, like, misunderstandings between peers, basically. Um, and then, like, fear, like, people are afraid of anger and, like, she wants us to not have that fear, basically. Um, and then, like, she's just, like, guilt doesn't serve anybody, defensiveness doesn't serve anybody, so, like, those things just, like, don't even waste time there, um, uh, yeah, but she does say that, like, if we, like, we shouldn't be afraid of anger, and we need to, like, express our anger to each other so that we can work through things and, like, that's what will be radical, because if we're so afraid and we're just trying to be polite and we can't express our anger then, like, we're not going to get to real solutions Um, because we're so afraid of, like, basically having to see someone else's anger, Um, which I wonder if she doesn't really connect to this, but I wonder if it has to do with just being conditioned by, like, masculine figures in our lives. Um, Like that quote I said earlier, that's, like, someone tweeted, um, women have been like, cast as the emotional ones because somehow men have been able to convince everyone that anger is not an emotion. It's interesting here because I think also she says something to the effect of, like, uh, there's always the fear of, you know, discussing your real experiences and just being coded as, like, the angry Black woman.
1: Mm, yeah. And
0: that's, like, a specific thing that haunts Black women. True. But, yeah, but like, this anger just, like, comes, like, you know they say like microaggressions are like death by like a thousand cuts or something like it's like this builds up over like years and years of time where like you're just like you know you're silenced or like you're excluded or like people don't like they're they're so afraid of your anger that they um, they just like can't listen to the message and like um, yeah basically that she's like so angry because of racist attitudes. And, like, the presumptions that arise out of them. But then there's no way to express that anger without also being cast in a racist light, basically. But she also says that, like, anger and, like, the fears that, like, basically white women have of, like, black women's anger is, like, a spotlight that we can use, like, to grow. And that, like, she says specifically that, like, she's learned to express her anger as a way to grow. And I think, you know, part of this has to do with poetry, too. Um but yeah, she has an example. Um at a at an academic conference, so another academic conference. I'm sure she just in particular is like the academy is really fucked, but she says, I speak out of direct and particular anger at an academic conference and a white woman says, Tell me how you feel, but don't say it too harshly or I cannot hear you. Uh, but is it my manner that keeps her from hearing or the threat of a message that her life may change? Um, And I think that is this too, that she thinks like, well, white men and women are afraid of, they only want to hear you complain about men. They don't want to hear you complain about whiteness because they don't want to lose that privilege. Um, True. And yeah, basically she says like, you know, even though there's like all, you know, 15 years of the women's movement, like, on campus after campus, she says, like, she hears people say, like, how can we address the issues of racism? Like, there are no women of color. And then basically people are like, we have no one in our department equipped to teach the work of women of color, which is literally still a common excuse that they use now. It's like, oh, we just don't have people who can do that. And they don't want to have white people doing that. But it's like, um, so hire more black women? Like, um... But, yeah, she also says, so now white women are finally, like, examining their relationship to black women. Um, and they're really trying to reckon with it in some, some way. But that is also, like, they have these, even their images of black women because they don't interact with them very much are still stereotypes. But then she says, this is another, like, wow. Okay. This is another incident. She says, I wheel my two-year-old daughter in a shopping cart through a supermarket in East Chester in 1967. And a little white girl riding past in her mother's cart calls out excitedly, oh, look, mommy, a baby (laughs) maid. Yeah, dude. So it's like, and it's just like, yeah, you're being coded, like, when you're two. And it's like, you can't even fucking protect your kid from that because it's like, anywhere you go, there's going to be like, and it's like, the kid's not even trying to be racist. It's just that's literally how you think of black people yeah like you literally don't have experience with black people otherwise it's just like um yeah so basically yeah she all all, always has a lot of uh problems with i mean this is of course she's only talking about white women here and i think part of it is just she's like okay white men we expect this from them (laughs) but like if you're even trying as a white woman to like get with feminism and you're able to acknowledge that oppressive system like why can't you acknowledge these other oppressive systems um
1: oh dude yeah this that just made me think of i don't know if you have ever seen the movie book smart i mean it's kind of like i don't know it's it's like a upper middle class type geared toward young adult and high schoolers in that young adult like upper middle class age group but um there's a part where there's a girl like a high school girl who's in the same class as the main character and people refer to her as like triple a because she like pulls over and gives guys rides home and I guess she like doesn't really drink she's kind of like a dd um like doesn't need a driver and uh she also like I guess gives them blowjobs or whatever and so yeah no, this is from 2019 but it's yeah, it's like two. It's like two high school girls. This the main character, but but this girl Triple A like picks up the main character and is like, "Yeah, I knew that the guys would get, you know, they would say stupid stuff about about me. Like they would they would make jokes, but I didn't expect the girls to do that. And it just it just sucks because it's like women on women crime. <laughs> um, but uh, she was just. Clearly, the character was really sad that that other women were using their privilege as like not being, not having their reputation soiled, and like using it against the girl who has had her reputation soiled, basically, um, in this like really petty fight about you know, status, I guess. So it's it's just similar to the whole, like, well, I, I'm a white feminist, but, like, I don't want to give up my white privilege kind of thing. Like, that power dynamic. Yeah.
0: yeah, and she talks about, like, another conference where, like, oh, this is supposed to be about, um, you know, it's, like, the National Women's Studies Association holding a conference, and it's supposed to be responding to racism, and yet, like, women of color and poor women can't come again because of a fee. And she says, is this to be merely another case of the academy discussing life within the closed circuits of the academy? As in, again, like, and I I see this all the time, too. Like, there's no interest in, like, actual engagement with the actual people you're talking about. It's like, yeah, let's talk about schizophrenia abstractly, but absolutely never meet a schizophrenic person, (laughs) you know?
1: Yeah, well, David also talks about this, like, you probably hear me downstairs, but, like, how churches will do this they'll they'll like have you know retreats and things that are like let's you know let's improve this community and it'll really just be like a vacation in that community and they won't really engage and I, I don't think that that's necessarily all like all mission trips are but like a lot he says that like a lot of churches and a lot of like religious organizations will will do this like false engagement type thing where it's like, there's an awareness, but it stops just short of actually making a change.
0: I think she, she also says, like, that basically the mainstream media doesn't want us as women to unite, especially white women, to be thinking about racism. Um, and, you know, of course, like, again, she brings up capitalism and she's like, well, this system itself needs racism and sexism. Like, it's necessary as a prop of profit. And, um, yeah, I think that that's, like, really true also. That, like, even this idea that we're competing with one another and, like, the best people get the best jobs. And, like, you got to make sure your kid gets the best education over other kids. It's, like, it is this whole idea where, um, like, the competitiveness between people, which in part fuels racism and sexism, um, or, like, they're all untangled, um it's just like necessary for capitalism to get you to like go to work basically. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I just want to like say a few more things here that are like related to that. And then you can say that, but yeah. So she, again, she, she distinguishes between hatred and anger and she's like, okay, anger is, um, you know, it comes about because of like disagreements between people who really could be allies. Um, and we cannot allow our fear of anger to deflect us nor seduce us into settling for anything less than the hard work of excavating honesty. Um, and that, like, you know, hatred. And she talks about, like, the goals are different. So hatred's goal is destruction and death. And it's something that happens in reaction to, like, people who don't share our goals. So, like, I think of, like, you know, hating Trump. It's like, it is because like this person actively wants things to be in the world, be the world to be a certain way. Like they're going to do everything to make that world, the world that way. And like, I have the opposite goals and like, what is, what, what kind of movement can we even have with those people? Um, the object is just death and destruction. But then she says, anger is a grief of distortions between peers and its object is change. And then she goes into also that like these distortions about difference, like they come about as part of like they're really historical and we have to like meet with peers, like find a way to talk to people who are different than us so that we can begin to alter those distortions and like actually be able to see each other. We have to ask ourselves who profits from all of this, this whole system of like distorting difference, which we know who profits from it. And then, yeah, she says, like, women of color have grown up in a symphony of anger. And I like this, too, because she says, I say symphony because we have had to learn to orchestrate those furies so that they do not tear us apart. And then she says, and some women have not survived. They've, they haven't been able to. And part of my anger is always libation for my fallen sisters. Um,
1: libation. Then, yeah. That's a poetic word to use there.
0: <laughs> I know. Well, yeah, even the symphony and like that you're orchestrating these feelings. Like it's like always very metaphorical. But yeah, she's like, I don't get it. Like, why is the anger of of like women of color more threatening than the hatred people hold towards all women?
1: Yeah.
0: Um. And yeah, so it's like you should see other women, even if they're black, as more ready allies than men um and it's not the anger of other women that will destroy us but our refusal to stand still and listen to its rhythms and to learn from it um uh, because like anger is an, a source of empowerment and then she says um blah 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 like most women haven't formed tools for facing anger constructively um she like criticized consciousness raising groups as like mostly dealing with white like white women um And that they didn't understand or, like, ever deal with the contradictions of, like, woman as oppressor. How they themselves could be oppressors. Um, Yeah. And that all they knew how to deal with anger was to avoid it. Um,
1: Deflect it. Flee from it under a blanket of guilt.
0: Yeah. And then the next, yeah, the next... I looked into this and I found a document. It hasn't been transcribed, so it's, like, the original writing. It's from 1921. But it's this, you know... Mary Church Terrell uh tells the story of a pregnant black woman whose baby like the baby's torn from her body after she's lynched.
1: This yeah, I read like an account of this and yeah. it is revolting.
0: Yeah, and then two women who two white women who are there like what did she do to deserve it? And it's just like, yeah, this is exactly it's like you're not even questioning the system itself that's doing these things like you're you still are putting so much trust in these like and it is a, a particularly masculine way to deal with
1: um problems but <clears throat> yeah. letting them play out
0: yeah it is this interesting thing too because there is like the pregnancy and the baby and like there's this um actually dorothy roberts uses this image in killing the black body where she says like the most moving but like distressing like image that she's come across in all of her research on like reproductive rights in the United States is like the pregnant slave that they would they would dig a hole in the ground and have her lay face down so yeah. that you can still whip her, but it wouldn't damage the baby.
1: Yeah, except it completely still did. And also that wasn't always done. They would also just like whip the shit out of you naked, fully pregnant.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I basically just I just was thinking about that, too, just, like, how, like, even in this state of, like, when we think of them as, like, so women being so innocent, like, black women never are seen as innocent, even when they're pregnant with a baby, like, even when they're, like, the most, quote-unquote, like, like, weak or, like, fragile,
1: it's, like... They're, yeah, they're not really counted as, like, mothers, they're counted as, like, this different, they're not human, they're not, they're dehumanized.
0: Yeah. And like, yeah, women were raised to fear because anger usually threatened annihilation because like men would use just like brute force. And yeah, I I really definitely remember like being particularly afraid of anger um, when I was growing up. But when we turn from anger, we turn from insight.
1: What do you think of that quote? And if we accept our powerlessness, then of course, any anger can destroy us.
0: We have to have the power to, like, use our anger as, like, a way to, to get to knowledge like, as a spotlight for growth rather than as, like, I think, yeah, I think she does acknowledge, like, anger can be this just totally destructive force as well. Uh, anger between peers, births, change, not destruction, and the discomfort and sense of loss it often causes is not fatal but a sign of growth. And, like, she says how it has served her. It has served me as fire in the ice zone of uncomprehending eyes of white women who see in my experience and the experiences of my people only new reasons for fear or guilt. That's the thing. I mean, honestly, it comes up with Republicans and Democrats, too. Like, I would say right now that, like, it's really weird that Democrats are trying to, like, find common ground with Republicans more than, like, with other Democrats. But, yeah, I think the same thing happens where, like, progressives have can have so much anger towards moderates and moderates can have so much anger towards progressives in the democratic party and yet it's like who's the real enemy like yes actually like you know the democrats do a lot of really bad stuff but they're still not as bad
1: as yeah audrey lord would probably say we should unite
0: yeah or at least yeah but that's that also requires moderates listening to progressives anger which they hate doing so
1: yeah, it is a pendulum. It goes back and forth of how much do we listen? And like, I don't know. I mean, I think that there are some successes that we could say have been won. Like, I don't know, people say, oh, you won the war of ideas. Like, I don't know if that's necessarily true, but um, at least very slowly, these things do change. Like, I remember when I was first entering college, it was like, you know, people were people around me, in my, like, middle-class, like, middle-class Democrat circles were not even really talking about trans rights or queer people. Like, they were still stuck on, like, like, fight against, like, you know, a deficit ceiling. It's like, that was, like, the most important thing or whatever. Or, you know, let's make sure women aren't, you know, too too burdened upon by abortion laws and restrictions um that was like the extent of it but once i started talking to like poorer people and like queer people and started meeting more people in college it was like that were kind of more on the left they they clearly knew a lot more about like queer and trans issues and i think that slowly that is now like 10 years later becoming adopted into the mainstream like moderate democrat diff- discourse. So it change does happen, but it's like Audrey Lord is writing about this like the stuff that is just being adopted like now in the 70s, you know, <laughs> like yeah. so I think it can happen, but it just is like a lot longer of a timeline and it's not as it's a bit of a thankless job to be to be farther left than the, the majority.
0: Yeah. It's exhausting. I have, but I guess someone's gotta do it. Someone's I just do it. Yeah, okay. But anyway, other thing to say is just basically like, you know, I'm this is also a pretty famous line. Um, I am not free while any woman is unfree, even when her shackles are very different from my own. And I am not free as long as one person of color remains chained, nor is any one of you. Yeah, and I think also she says, like, basically, we eventually need to be able to use whatever strengths we have to, like, build a new world, um, where the power of touching and meeting another woman's difference and wonder will eventually transcend the need for destruction. And then another great, I'm just continuing to read here, for it is not the anger of black women which is dripping down over this globe like a diseased liquid. It is not my anger that launches rockets, spends more than $60,000 a second on missiles and other agents of war and death, slaughters children in cities, stockpiles nerve gas and chemical bombs, sodomizes our daughters and our earth. It is not the anger of black women which corrodes into blind, dehumanizing power, bent upon the annihilation of us all, unless we meet it with what we have, our power to examine and to redefine the terms upon which we will live and work. Um, So basically, like trying to create a future, um, we welcome all women who can meet us face to face beyond objectification and beyond guilt. So, yeah, I mean, I do think it's specifically written to white women, like, or, like, learn something, dude. Like, finally learn something. But also to black women, like, I know exactly how frustrated you are. I've dealt with these exact same things, you know.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, yeah. so you want to just quickly tell us what we want? It's kind of a long chapter, but what we can learn from uh, the 1960s.
1: Yeah, so a lot of this chapter is about Malcolm X and how – She came around to believing that his message was like a an important one moving forward through politics. Um, So she talks about how it was first when she first heard about Malcolm X and the Black Muslims. She was it was February 1965. She was raising two children and a husband in a three room flat in Harlem. Um, she did not really give much thought to him or the Nation of Islam because of their attitude towards women as well as because of their non-activist stance. But then she kind of comes around to Malcolm X. And we also know that Malcolm X changed his views throughout his life. He, he left the Nation of Islam. Um, I think they, I can feel like, I'm not sure exactly what it was, but they publicly denounced him and there was a whole feud there. Um, and he kind of developed more progressive views later in life. Um, he became more intersectional, I guess. And he broadened his opinions concerning the role of women in society and the revolution. He was beginning to speak with increasing respect of the connection between himself and Martin Luther King Jr., whose policies of nonviolence appeared to be so opposite to his own. And he began to examine the societal conditions under which alliances and coalitions must indeed occur. Um, Yeah. So the 1960s, she just says is uh, there was a lot of anger in the black community that was often expressed in a lot of different ways. Um, She said a lot of the time vertically against the corruption of power, but also in a very damaging way horizontally towards those closest to to us who mirrored our own impotence. Um, She says, we were poised for attack, not always in the most effective places. When we disagreed with one another about the solution to a particular problem, we were often far more vicious to each other other than to to the originators of our common problem. Um, We all know about Martin Luther King and Malcolm X being of different uh, political uh, persuasions, I guess, saying at least how white people characterized MLK when they weren't, you know, just trying to defame him and assassinate him. They characterized him as the the nonviolent one, you know, the good the good church boy, the nice one, and a Malcolm X scary, evil black gun. Islam, you know, like other, they, you know, Malcolm X, bad, Martin Luther King, good. That's how it's kind of told today, the story of the 1960s. Back in the 1960s, white people were terrified of both of them. Let's just make that clear. Um, Martin Luther King, they were both assassinated, one by a crazy white guy and another by the FBI. So, yeah, they're regardless of the different philosophies they, they espoused regarding violence versus nonviolence, Malcolm X, obviously coming around more toward nonviolence near the end of his career and end of his life, really. Um, Regardless of that, they were both assassinated. So they were both black. They were both brutalized. They were both in the same situation. And that's her point is that Audre Lorde is saying like, look, we we were very unkind to each other. We lost sight of our common goal in the nineteen sixties. Um, which is interesting because I think that, you know, civil rights movement pretty pretty great effort. Um, <laughs> like a lot of things a lot of successes came out of it. But I guess she's just saying that we, you know, there's more there's more to be done. Um, yeah, she says in the nineteen sixties, white America, racist and liberal alike was more than pleased to sit back as spectator while black militant fought black muslim uh black nationalists, badmouth the nonviolent and black women were told that our only useful position in the black power movement was prone um she mentions <laughs> sorry what
0: I said that's funny phrasing but yeah I remember laughing at that part
1: yeah me too uh Black was beautiful, but still suspect, and too often our forums for debate became stages for playing who's blacker than who or who's poorer than who games, one in which there can be no winners. Yeah, so she thinks of these competitions that still happen today, definitely. That, <laughs> it's you know, the, the oppression Olympics is what she's talking about. She's like, let's not play oppression Olympics. <laughs> if I was only blacker, things would be fine. If I was only more feminine, you know, things would be fine. Um, yeah, my poetry, my life, my work, my energies for struggle were not acceptable unless I pretended to match somebody else's norm. She doesn't want to repeat these mistakes in the 1980s specifically. So she definitely sees room for improvement of the tactics of the 1960s. I've been talking a long time, so I can I can let you break in, Kay. Okay. I like that she says one of the most basic black survival skills is the ability to change. I mean, there's a longer quote than that, but that's kind of the essence of what she says. Um, I also read Paul Beatty's novel *The Sellout*, and he makes the exact same point. I mean, he he makes it in a much funnier, like dark humor type way. Like he says, like the book is a is is black black humor, um, two blacks, and it's. Uh, He says, you know, after generations and generations of the only way you get to survive is by tricking white people into believing that either you are, you are not tricking them, or that you are doing what they're told, that you're doing what you're told. Black people are quick on their feet. That's the only way you can survive as a black American. So she just, she echoes that statement here and says that you know we need to rely on the strength that we have as black people, as black Americans. We need to rely on our creativity. We need to rely on our resilience and our ability to change our flexibility, um, our ability to see our differences and work with it. Because that's the only way that we've survived for the past 400 years. And this is the way we're gonna to continue to survive. Um, I mean, it's dark, but I mean, sounds like she's right.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think also part of this is like, there are leaders, but like, it's not, it can't just be up to them. There is no black person who can afford to wait to be led into positive action for survival. So, like, we can't just wait for there to be, you know, a leader. And, like, even if there's a leader, are they going to be taken anyway? I think, yeah, the thing that she sees as, like, the worst is, like, when people destroy each other or use their anger against each other rather than the actual enemy because it's just wasted energy. And she talks about that with, like, in, like, women's groups and then also in, like, the black community. So I found that interesting, too. But I think in both communities she feels like, no one gives a fuck about lesbians. So I was interested that she didn't really go into like the gay movement, not caring about, you know, black people or something.
1: Yeah. She asks, can we really still afford to be fighting each other? We're black people living in a time when the consciousness of our intended slaughter is all around us. People of color are increasingly expendable. Our government's policy, both here and abroad. So she gets into kind of, more like third-worldism here. Um, we're functioning under a government ready to repeat in El Salvador and Nicaragua with the tragedy of Vietnam, which we then uh, did, definitely. Um, a government which stands on the wrong side of every single battle for liberation taking place upon this globe. Yeah, it's the apartheid in South Africa, the murder and torture in Haiti and El Salvador, South America, it's it's a bad look for for history so how do we work with that how do we how do we revolt against all of this it's clearly so much bigger this power that they're facing it's so much bigger than you know the black lesbian group in new york it's bigger than the nation of islam it's bigger than nasa it's bigger than uh the national organization for women like you have to all band together if you're even going to have a chance at taking an empire like this down
0: yeah so how would you say like like what's her strategy i mean it's like connecting people expressing our real feelings um having difficult conversations writing
1: yeah looking she's very like look within yourself focused i think it's like you have to free yourself inside and like live live with that struggle internally to be able to act it out and like truly unite yeah outside of yourself so like you have to keep in mind the long term so she's saying Revolution is not a one-time event, it's becoming always vigilant for the smallest opportunity to make a genuine change and establish outgrown responses. For instance, it is learning to address each other's difference with respect. Um, In a lot of ways, I think she is... mm, She probably would describe herself as non-violent, as her... Like her praxis, at least, is probably very nonviolent. It's probably much more like mutual aid, communitarian focused, um, building a community, building interdependency, um, exhibiting kindness and love. Like very, very much like the core of yourself reflects outside. And the change that you want to see in the world. You are like the change you want to see in the world. So I think that's kind of her her idea of how revolution is going to happen. She doesn't think it's a, it's storming the Bastille. She thinks it's changing yourself. And everyone doing that. Everyone changing themselves. Well, there we go. We got
0: our homework assignment before next week. <laughs> Just a transformation of selfhood
1: yeah well, I guess she also yeah, I guess she also argues though that like because black people are constantly there that's what oppression is like you're living in a society where your true self cannot really be fully realized, so you're constantly having to change. Um, and once you know if you have you we all have certain privileges, once we realize that other people are constantly having to change themselves, then you can kind of enact that same. You can have empathy for them, for the ways they have to change, because you, you yourself can understand the ways that you have to change. So just like an awareness of that provides bridges across these differences, I think. Um, But yeah, specifically from a Black perspective, I think it's like, well, you know, we've been told to change who we are. Our existence has been negated since we got here. We were taken here, like, and dehumanized for hundreds of years as slaves. Like, if we can overcome that, like, white feminists can certainly overcome their problems as well. Like, just look to us for advice, you know? We've done it. Ah, uh, Yeah. Okay, so
0: I guess... Yeah, great. Uh, I have some more ideas of things, but I think next week we're going to do Angela Davis, right?
1: Uh, Yeah, let's do that.
0: So I hope everyone notices that I've said um less (laughs) from editing these podcasts and noticing how much I say it. Slash now when I edit the podcasts, I just edit out my ums. So hopefully you're noticing that there's less of them. And then I was just about to say, um, <laughs> yeah, that's all I really had to say. I just thought it was uh, something important to just speak directly to the
1: audience about. Good, good job. We're all learning to change ourselves and edit our podcasts as we go. Uh, this has been a great, great, really long episode of Audrey Lord's The Master's Tools Will Never dismantle, them, dismantle the Master's House. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time.
0: Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the gender playbook. This has been an Eskins theme production
1: intro music by Savannah theme.
0: Please tune in again next week. If you'd like to play some more gender games with us.